Your gut has a massive impact on your overall health, mental, spiritual, and physical. This is something we've talked about many times in different ways on this podcast. Today, we're gonna do a deep dive into understanding what happens when your gut microbiome is out of balance. I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Adam Rindy, who treats patients for all kinds of gut issues. He and I will explain gut dysbiosis, SIBO, or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and how you can diagnose and treat these conditions. We'll give you real tools you can use on a daily basis to improve your gut health, and through that, your overall health. All that and more on today's Be Healthistic. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that's more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Dr. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes plus extra videos you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Be Healthistic. Today in the show, we're welcoming a fellow naturopathic physician who is also a personal friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Adam Rindy. Dr. Rindy specializes in restoring balance between digestive health, metabolic health, and mental health with an approach known as naturopathic gastroenterology. Over the course of his career, he has seen how optimizing gut function leads to a balanced metabolism and better mental health. Dr. Rindy sometimes uses old-fashioned medicines, but he also employs sophisticated approaches like microbiome testing and balancing. For many of the gastrointestinal disorders that he treats, Dr. Rindy uses the GI MAP test, LEAP MRT testing, and SIBO breath testing often in his evaluations, which we're going to talk about today. We're also going to discuss gut dysbiosis, specifically a condition called SIBO, or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, that both of us regularly encounter in our practices. He was kind enough to invite me on his podcast, The One Thing, over the summer to discuss red light therapy. And now we're happy to reciprocate and welcome him to our show. Adam, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. It's great to be here. Well, you are uh, really one of the experts on, on SIBO, and that's why we wanted to have you on the show here today. And uh, I remember back in September of 2014, you put on a webinar for the uh, California Naturopathic Association on SIBO, and that was actually one of my first real, real introductions to it. So I thank you for, for setting the stage there and really paving the way for all the, different, all the great information out there about SIBO. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed that webinar. Um, it was a lot of work. Yeah, I bet uh, it was. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, a really good way to learn, to to get out and teach. Yeah, in fact, I actually looked at it last night, and I was just blown away by how up-to-date it even was back in 2014. Like, I mean, all that stuff applies today, and a lot has changed within SIBO, which we'll we'll talk about. Um, So for our audience, let's really dive into dysbiosis and talk about what that is and, and also really how SIBO falls under that category. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, dysbiosis is a term that kind of blankets any um, imbalance in the digestive tract that involves a microbiome. And I think the best way to understand dysbiosis is to understand the opposite of dysbiosis, which is eubiosis. And eubiosis is a state where the microbiome is in balance. And so that's usually defined as a microbiome that has diversity, um, it has balance, it has uh, species that are cooperating together. So in a microbiome, even though there's some bacteria that are larger in population and there's others that are smaller in population, in a, har in a harmony state, in ecology, these uh, bacteria are working together to, to help each other thrive and help the host thrive. Now, dysbiosis is when that system gets thrown out of balance. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see different subsets of dysbiosis. There can be a dysbiosis where you have undergrowth of bacteria, mm -hmm. um, where the commensal communities or, or the normal bacterial communities are undergrown. And then you can have a dysbiosis where something called pathobionts will, will develop, which are normal bacteria that can eventually overgrow and potentially become harm, harmful in the right setting. And there's other dysbiosis where you actually have a pathogen that people be familiar like something, for example, like salmonella um, mm -hmm. can create a dysbiosis scenario. And then you have situations with dysbiosis where bacteria is actually misplaced. And so like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, bacteria is overgrown or displaced in the wrong region of the intestine. So we're, we're getting to be um, very, we're getting more granular with our understanding of dysbiosis because it's connected to so many different disease states. Mm -hmm. And so those are sort of my understanding of the, the different types of dysbiosis at this time. And when we talk about dysbiosis and, and SIBO in particular, obviously we're gonna have symptoms that arise in the gastrointestinal tract like bloating or uh, constipation, diarrhea, alternating constipation, diarrhea. Um, and I want you to sort of talk about how we can also experience symptoms systemically in the body too. How does, how does that happen? Yeah. So. The, the important thing to understand about this is that um, the, the lumen of the intestine is actually somewhat the outside world. You know, it's, it's a tube that runs through us, starting in our mouth and going down to the rectum. And then dividing that tube from our inside world is essentially a, a mucus layer um, and tissue epithelial layer. And there's a lot that goes on to protect this outside world from, from influencing this inside world a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. to break down that system is, is a exercise in pretty much every system of medicine. You know, there's physical and biochemical and immunologic properties that keep this layer intact and keep this layer defending us. It's, it's quite fascinating. And so when dysbiosis becomes a problem systemically, then there's a breach in that mucus layer and the immune system that's on the other side of that mucus layer, which is in our inside world, is now being 
uh, triggered or, and, and so systemically the inside world is on alert. And so there can be various signaling and release of bacterial components that eventually activate the immune system and activate inflammation inside our body. So that's the connection is, and, and that inflammation can affect many different organ systems, um, including the brain, the heart, the liver, the kidney, the lungs. I mean, if you look up gut and fill in the blank access right now, you can pretty much pick an organ and Google gut brain access, gut liver access, gut mm -hmm. kidney access. It's the connection starts with that breach. And for those listening, they, they might be saying to themselves, well, I've never really even heard of this term dysbiosis or SIBO. Um, maybe I've got some symptoms like the bloating, the diarrhea, the constipation, maybe some nausea. Um, how common, though, would you say this is in our in our general population? I mean, do, do a lot of people suffer from this? Uh, you know, the, so there's there's different ways to look at SIBO, like as a as a primary condition and a secondary condition. So it's really hard to quantify. So the general person with no chronic health condition that's you know doing doing well, um, there's likely a, a very low likelihood that they have SIBO. Um, probably ten to fifteen percent of the people in the general population that are are walking around with no other chronic health conditions. But if you have other health conditions, such as irritable bowel syndrome, mm -hmm. you know you could have SIBO up to. There's been predictions up to sixty to eighty percent of irritable bowel syndrome patients also have SIBO. Someone who has fibromyalgia, it's been predicted by Pimentel's group that 100% of those patients may have SIBO. And so it really kind of hooks on to other conditions. Um, so the, the general person who's feeling well and they have a little bloat and, and um, you know, they're, they're having some digestive gas problems and maybe it's, it's sort of a small deal, not necessarily a, a big deal. You know that that's that's probably around ten percent of our population. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's significant, right? It I, is. I think it is significant, and um, you know, I think the degree of what we have to do about it also depends on you know how out of balance the rest of the body is. And okay, so. Our listeners are saying to themselves, well, maybe I've got some of these symptoms. Um, you know, I also have some systemic things happening in my body, too. Maybe I have some brain fog. Maybe I have some joint pain, maybe some depression, some anxiety. So everyone, the, the wheels are spinning in people's minds right now. Um, if they went to their doctor and talked about SIBO, what would be the next step that a doctor might do in terms of testing to help them understand if they truly do have this condition? Sure. So when when they go to their doctor, you know, I think... It, it really is important to bring information to the doctor about what your concern is, um, because you know if you if you if someone feels or suspects that they have SIBO, they might be told that they might be given sort of answers like, "Well, you know, you're everybody gets a little bit of digestive gas as you get older, or you know, everybody deals with this, um, you know, just uh, you know." eat slower or what have you, <laughs> you know, right. and, uh, and so, and so it's important to kind of bring up, you know, that you, you want to be tested, um, or can I have a referral to someone who might be, have the ability to test me. So if, when, when you kind of cross that hurdle, cause it is difficult sometimes to get other healthcare providers on board. 
mm-hmm. is that you can then get what's called a breath test. And up until about two weeks ago, I would say that there was a breath test that was going to test you for hydrogen or methane gas in your small intestine. Now, thankfully, after many, many years, there's a test out called the Trio Smart test, which will test for hydrogen bacteria, uh, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen gas, and methane gas. And so this is a breath test that you can perform at home and we can um, detect if someone has SIBO based on levels of gas production after swallowing a solution called lactulose. And so this solution tracks actually the intestinal uh, path of the of, of gas. And so we can predict if there's excess gas production. That excess product, gas production means that there's fermentation taking place mm-hmm. in the small intestine at a level that is much higher. Fermentation is produced when the bacteria is, is munching on you know, sort of the, the carb, carbohydrates and starches that are more difficult to break down. So um, this test will detect if that's excessive in a particular person. And that's that's fantastic because I actually wasn't aware of that. I was gonna ask you that question about is the hydrogen sulfide testing available now? And well, yeah. we know. In fact, I, I just ordered my first two tests because um, people should know this, that SIBO presents in different well, ways. It can pre- present as constipation, um, subtypes, diarrhea subtypes, um, mixed subtypes, and so, a lot of people are frustrated because in the past, the breath test would come back negative and they could swear they have symptoms of SIBO. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a test that would detect for this third type of gas that is involved with SIBO called hydrogen sulfide. Well, now, now we do, thanks to, uh, again, Dr. Pimentel, who's you know one of the, the key people in this field. Yeah. And so we've, let's say if our, our patients have, have gone out there, they've gotten a test done, it comes back with a positive and they're showing, you know, whether there is a predominance of methane or hydrogen or now this hydrogen sulfide gas that's there. Um, what do we do next for treatment? What are the treatment options, including conventional antibiotic and also natural looking at antimicrobials and all the different uh, other forms of, of supplements that we can use? Yeah, I mean, there's some standard treatments that you would expect if you went to a gastroenterologist, and there's this, there's other different um, treatments that you would expect if you went to like an integrative or functional or naturopathic type doctor. I mean, I'm talking to you. You're you're also a <laughs> digestive health expert, so we could probably talk for hours about how we want to approach a particular case because you know we think somewhat deeply about each patient and how they present and what would be right for them. So if you're in a gastroenterologist office, which, you know, is, in my opinion, a perfectly viable option, um, is that you would get probably uh, a prescription for something called Zyfaxin, which is a non-absorbable antibiotic that targets these gram-positive, gram-negative overgrowth organisms in the small intestine. It seems to spare the rest of your microbiome according to the research um, from too much harm. And they usually put the patients on a low FODMAP diet. There's one double-blinded natural product um, regimen that was put head-to-head against Zyfaxin that a lot of gastroenterologists in my community will recommend this combination. It's a combination of herbal um, bacteria. You You can Google that study. It's from John Hopkins 
university. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they'll be given alternatives to take like an herbal antimicrobial. Um, now, it just depends on your view of this, like Pasteur view, which is kind of like, you know, the, the germ is the disease versus Beauchamp, you know, who it's more of like the terrain. And so I know you're a terrain guy. Um, <laughs> I think at least I am. Think. I am primarily. <laughs> so like the difference in how you approach it is like as a naturopath um, who is terrain focused, you know, you kind of look at like traveling into the gut, like a, a, a Marine would go in, you know, instead of like bombing the gut from the sky. <laughs> right. You know, you're going to look around as the person. Indiscriminately. Out. Yeah. Exactly. So you, as a Marine, you go in and you survey the scene from the ground floor. Is a person chewing their food enough? Is their mouth dry? Is their stomach acid low? Um, is a patient having problems with gallbladder release? Is the patient having problems with motility? Um, and you, you have to think about the digestive tract on a very deep level about how how the person got here in the first place. And so functional integrative might look at things like, well, I think we're going to start you off with some enzymes to help break you, break down some food, improve your stomach acid, stimulate the gallbladder a little bit. Let's see how you do there. Um, maybe we'll maybe we'll see an improvement enough where this is no longer symptomatic. We don't need to kind of wipe out this bacteria. If that doesn't work, you might work to step two, which is using herbs that are both antimicrobial, but at the same time, anti-inflammatory because we know as naturopaths that if someone has a longstanding gastrointestinal prog problem, they likely have leaky gut, mm -hmm. intestinal permeability issues. And so if we're, if we're kind of going in with aggressive treatments, we may be further damaging the intestinal lining. So we might use things like glutamine or um, uh, serum bovine immun immunoglobulins to help kind of preserve the intestinal lining and help the immune system function better. So. Um, I like to, you know, sort of meet the patient where they're at. Some people can't invest in a whole repair of their gut. They just mm -hmm. want to feel better and get back to work. And sometimes we do go with more just antimicrobials. Now, I am really excited about, you know, thoughtful probiotics and prebiotic approaches here too, like as we progress in treatment. Um, because one of the things I've learned about SIBO is that, um, what happens, they, a 2020 study came out where they did a, uh, they actually took a sample of the digestive juices in SIBO. This was a PLOS One study that just came out in July. And they saw that basically there's um, 3.5 times more uh, uh, Bacteraceae uh, um, species. This is a Proteobacter uh, um from the Proteobacter phylum, and this is essentially um, suppressing a organism that's from the phylum Firmicutes. Mm -hmm. And so we see that there's this kind of elevation of more of a, a facultative anaerobic bacteria in that particular, in SIBO patients. So we have to think about like, what is the environment going on in these patients where the normal um, species that should be living there, which are like lactobacilli, are getting suppressed and these more aggressive species are coming to life. And so I'm, you know, I'm thinking um, down the road of, you know, the proper time to use probiotics in SIBO. We're certainly see some, some probiotics can help with uh, SIBO. 
Yeah, and I want to circle back to the the probiotics and prebiotics um, in a moment here, but I want to uh, underline what you said about this being a comprehensive treatment. So if we just jump to the antibiotics, like the Zyfaxin, maybe the neomycin, if they've got more methane producing bacteria, we may only get so far the the SIBO may not improve or it may come back very quickly. Um, so I think that what you're talking about is just such an essential uh, piece here and that we really need to treat people. It's a personalized medicine. So if they need more digestive support, whether it's the enzymes, we need to work on the the barrier with more immunoglobulin supports, or it is the probiotics that we're bringing in there. I think that's just such a, a critical piece. I, I want you to speak to the importance of diet and going back to carbohydrates and how those are, are implicated with SIBO. So what are your thoughts on the low FODMAP diet? First off, what is that? And then how does that help uh, improve symptoms of SIBO? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet um, is essentially um, at its core, it, it's taking out highly fermentable carbohydrates from the diet. So what this means highly and rapidly, meaning so as soon as they hit the small intestine, and so just so people have a sense is the small intestine, the duodenum is just down the road from your mouth. I mean, so once the digestive, uh, once the digestion takes place in the stomach, if there are bacteria sitting in the duodenum, which is the first 12 inches of your small intestine, and it meets a highly fermentable uh, carbohydrate, you can get increased gas production. So what the low FODMAP diet does is it reduces foods that would, would potentially increase the, the, that gas production at that, those early moments of digestion. So, um, so basically it removes things like lactose and high fructose foods and, um, these, uh, forms of carbohydrates called galacto-oligosaccharides and fructo-oligosaccharides and polyols. Mm -hmm. And so these are, this diet is um, really useful kind of from a public health perspective, you know, meaning like a lot of people who don't have access to getting mm -hmm. good care and they need something just to get by and feel well for a while so that they can travel, they can go to work and they can, can function. And so this particular diet can help those people get by. Um, it can reduce yeah. some of their symptoms in a gas. Now, does it fix SIBO? There's, there's not a lot of evidence that it does. So, and people can get kind of stuck on that diet and, and get kind of um, limited. And then the, the more limited the diet we have, the more less diversity we have. Mm -hmm. And there's, so there's some studies that say that, you know, you should only be on it for about three months. Um, and then you start to see uh, butyrate producing species decrease and some other really important species in the, in the digestive tract. So I think it's great for getting people to feel well so they can focus on these other long-term repair items. Mm -hmm. And what about the elemental diet? That's another diet we should really briefly mention to our listeners. What is that and, and how does that benefit those that have SIBO? Right. So the elemental diet basically is, um, almost like a purified uh, protein amino acid type diet. It has very, very little sugar, very little or no fiber. And usually you go on this, it's a drink that you blend up and then you, you usually um, will drink that for two or so weeks. And the research has shown that um, it's used in a lot of settings. So um, it, it can help with Crohn's patients and decreasing um, flare severity in the early stages. Um, but in SIBO, you know, it's been kind of used to suppress bacteria overgrowth. 
mm-hmm. as kind of a, a way to um, heal or reduce SIBO. Um, again, you have to graduate from it, and how you graduate from it is key. Uh, some people use it in combination with some of the other treatments we've already mentioned. Um, now, one thing that is rising in the in the community and in clinical practice is that um, it seems to give an edge to yeast organisms. If you're taking, um, if you're on elemental diet, it seems like candida, candida species can kind of have a, a leg up and then you might end up with candidal overgrowth. So to be thoughtful about the elemental diet is to really use it, but also have some antifungal prevention on board. Because yeah, you could be treating the bacteria, but leading to more of a, a CFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth, which is yeah. something that you don't want to develop. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so coming back to probiotics, then you, you said that there's there's a time and a place for them. Um, first off, when do you think about using probiotics, and secondly, what types of probiotics do you think are best for SIBO? Okay, so you know the the more I'm learning about this, is the more I understand is that the the upper intestine is a a very oxygen rich environment. So um, you, the bacteria, the probiotics that would work best in that environment are those that can survive oxygen, like a high oxygen status. So that's the lactic, lactic acid bacteria. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like um, lactobacillus ruteri and lactobacillus raminosus, um, lactobacillus acidophilus. So these are probably going to help the patient who has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth at some stage. I, I think that, you know, there's, there's enough evidence that um, at least in methane population overgrowth, you can start using them really early. Okay. In hydrogen overgrowth, um, it may cause increased symptoms in the beginning. And so I usually um, bring them in when I feel like the patient is stable and on their way till prevention. Now, dysbiosis, which we started off in this discussion, has many other applications. And so there's other probiotic species, especially like the bifidobacteria species and some of the spore-based probiotics that, you know, can go deeper into the intestine in more anaerobic um, environments. And they they really have a place for helping um, intestinal barrier, helping with other diseases like colitis and Crohn's and uh, many others. So, um, but for SIBO, I usually kind of go very gently with those lactobacillus-based organisms in the beginning, and then bring on spore-based and bifidobacteriums as I progress out. But I do think probiotics and pre- prebiotics, especially, have an important role in in SIBO. Well, speak to the prebiotic piece because we we just talked about the low FODMAP, which is restricting some of these um, you know carbohydrates that may lead to fermentation. Um, how is it that prebiotics, which are really acting as the fuel for the probiotics, how are they not having a negative impact on SIBO? Yeah, I mean, early on, they they likely would because it's like the opposite mm-hmm. of going on a low FODMAP diet is you're, you know, you're giving basically FODMAPs to the gut. And so, but later on, um, you know, you, you have to realize that when probiotics, um, for them to actually inoculate, grow, and thrive, they need their food. And so prebiotics, you know, like inulin and FOSS and some of the prebiotics from food, you know, like goss-based foods, like chickpeas and these other um, really healthy prebiotics actually help our 
you know, going back to the first thing we talked about, helping the diversity, the richness mm -hmm. of our microbiome, the helping those species that we want to really thrive, like the Firmicutes phylum and the, and the Bacteroides phylum, helping them thrive so that these other species that are a player, but they should not become um, pathogenic or become pathobiont. So we need to get to a place in, these, in this process of healing the gut where prebiotics are, are on board and we're, we're growing the Firmicutes and Bacteroides phylum. So like, I know these are big words, but basically, you know, you can look at it like, so 60% of our gut should be made up of Firmicutes and 30% should be made up of the uh, Bacteroides and phylum. And the rest should be these other subgroups. Um, and if we're, if we're low in these areas, we need to really enrich our gut and prebiotics are the way uh, you know, according to literature to really enrich and, and grow. So essentially this is just justifies like why fiber is really important in our diet. Well, and, and it goes to, it goes to what you're saying previously with the, the terrain. So we're, we really are supporting the terrain of the gut by, by adding in these prebiotics. Um, my last yeah. question for you, Adam, is uh, outcome here. Uh, what, what are we looking at for a time frame here as a general general rule for those that, that have SIBO? What, what are we looking at for, for time in terms of improvement? Yeah, so I think it's important to see the big picture with SIBO. So one thing we didn't talk about that's really important for people to be accessing and nourishing while they're on SIBO treatment is the brain-gut access. Um, so... This is kind of the mind-gut connection and the role of stress and the role of mindfulness and the role of, um, you know, managing stress on uh, and its effect on our gut symptoms. So for patients, to me, who, you know, kind of really dive in and they, they address stress, they address their gut, they, they're willing to make some of these lifestyle changes and they're willing to really kind of go deep into their treatment, then you know, usually things get on track in about three, three months or so. Um, you know, when you're just kind of um, treating SIBO with antibiotics and walking away, each time it just keeps kind of roaring back if there's been no terrain changes like you're talking about. Um, so in those patients, it can become a very frustrating condition. And some people just decide, you know, I'm tired of treating it. I'm just going to live with this. And, you know, they're, you know, they're living with bloat and gas and feeling crummy all the time. You know, um, you know, one thing, if you've never had digestive symptoms um, before, like significant digestive symptoms, when you have them, you just feel crummy. You, you just don't feel like doing much. You, you know, it can affect your mood. It can affect yeah. your desire to go out and socialize. Um, so, like, it's a big deal. And and I think it's, it's something that's not talked about enough. Um, it's kind of thing, something that people keep to themselves. Well, it, in a way it's, it's embarrassing for some people to have that conversation with their doctor about, well, I'm, I'm gassy and I'm bloaty and I, uh, I've got some loose stool, some diarrhea. Um, so once you kind of get over that, that hurdle there of, of being a little bit more open to talking about it, I find that that's really helpful to, to get in this relationship with your doctor that you trust them and that you can really divulge a lot of personal sensitive information to them because it is important, like you're saying, to really address these things because people do end up living with them for weeks and months and years of their life and they're suffering on, on a pretty, pretty big level. Yeah. And, and realize like everybody farts, right? You know, you have to be, <laughs> exactly. you, know, you, have to, you know, the doctor sitting across you, you know, has had gas like, you know, right. it's not, <laughs> 
you know, it's it's not like they're sitting there and they never have gas. So, you know, just to, <laughs> to, to, to realize that they're a human and they deal with the same things, but um, you may be helping the doctor across you realize that they can feel better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Adam, this was just a fantastic introduction to our listeners about SIBO, what it is, how to diagnose it, how to treat it. Um, before we wrap up today, uh, we're going to share some wellness wisdom with our listeners. Um, so in keeping what we've been talking about today, what is one big thing, one big thing that people can do to reduce the impact of stress has on their gut? Because you did mention stress previously. So I want to I want to kind of go to that. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, in this era of COVID where a lot of people are at home more, I'm I'm really big on like the this the slow, long meals, like, you know, taking taking a good hour to eat. You know, kind of like they do in Italy. Well, in Italy, it's two hours, right? <laughs> yeah, a little too long. No. <laughs> so okay. I, I'm really big on that and like having the engagement, um, yeah. the, the laughter, the chewing of your food, the smelling of your food, really making eating more of a lifestyle than something we just kind of throw down our throat. I, now I was raised by a, a foodie. So, I mean, I was really, sh you know, kind of shown to appreciate, you know, that of the gift of food and meals and getting together with people. When you do that, like you're, you're addressing the digestive tract on so many ends. Like you can have bitter foods that can stimulate serotonin. You can have, you can chew your food, which stimulates salivary amylase, helps the digestive breakdown. If you're laughing, laughing or singing with your, you know, in, at dinner, you're stimulating the vagus nerve. I mean, eating the process of eating and really enjoying it and slowing down with that, and making traditions out of dining, um, I think is one thing that I would, I really hope to foster, you know, with myself and with, with my patients and, and people that I interact with. That that's so brilliant, Adam, because, you know, we had, uh, we had Michael Murray on the podcast at one oh. point and, uh, he basically said one of the same things that you said with, with chewing the food being one of the most like important things you can do is just like, chew your food, right? Let's just start there. Let's get the digestive process going from there. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah. as naturopaths, we're always talking about just the importance of, of making sure that when you sit down to have your food, take your time. There's no rush. Don't watch the news while you're shoveling food in your mouth. Be with family and friends, have some thoughtful discussion, uh, share the love and share the food. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's such a gift and it, you know, to create positive experiences around food, I think is, does tremendous things for our digestive tract. Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you again for coming on the show today. This was fantastic. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I respect you so much and your father and the work you're doing, and I'm really enjoying your podcast. Um, oh. it's, it's really doing some great things out there. Thank you, Adam. You too. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember, if you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra, and this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.